Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, this is Julie, and here we are with Forgotten Classics, episode 254, as we continue with The People of the Mist by H. Ryder Haggard. First, a podcast highlight. Now, as I've been telling you, I have not really been listening to many podcasts lately. I've been somehow absorbed in audiobooks. I don't understand why it's just this shift. But I did look back through my archives and realized that as of the beginning of June, I will have been podcasting for seven years. Holy moly. No wonder I can't think of any more podcasts. Or maybe it's no wonder that I'm tired of listening to podcasts for a little while and ready to take a break to audiobooks. I'm still listening to things. It's just getting harder to find podcasts that I haven't already listened to or told you about. And all that came to mind when my oldest daughter, Hannah, recently got an iPod and started asking her friends, what podcasts should she listen to? And she said, don't bother telling me about Welcome to Night Vale, SFF Audio. You know, she listens to me talk about that stuff a lot. Or Radio Lab. And for the most part, it was kind of sad because her friends were saying, oh, This American Life, wait, wait, don't tell me. You know, these are things you can get on the radio, and it's great to get them in podcast form, and I like them that way, too. It's very handy. But she was looking for new things, and there weren't a lot of new things there. So I suddenly started making a list, and between Tom and me, we were saying, oh, well, here are about 20 that you have to have. (laughs) So what that made me think of is since this has been going on for seven years, practically, I'm going to revisit some of the old favorites that I think you should have. People who've been listening all that time, and I salute you, will already know about these. But what I discovered is when I was making this list for Hannah, I go through times where I get rid of a lot of podcasts, then I add them back in. And I realized there were some that I hadn't revisited for a while. And those are just those familiar voices that are great to listen to. They're your buddies. When you're having a tough day, you want to have a buddy telling you a story. So every so often, I'm sure I will have new podcasts, but we're going to go back through some old ones. The one that comes to mind right off is the Bowery Boys New York City History. These guys have been doing podcasts for a really long time, and they're still going. I salute them. Who knew there were over 150 or so episodes worth of fascinating things about New York City history? And yet every time they come up with something where I think, oh, I really do want to hear them talk about that. Now, I only go check them every so often, as I said more audiobooks, less podcasts. But I was just listening to a couple of recent ones, and they still have it. They are master storytellers. They hand off telling each other about the pieces of history. It's very entertaining. And they talk about everything in New York from old history. And for a lot of that, you might have to go to, there's an archived podcast where they have the first, oh, I don't know, 100 
or so of them that you can just get. And then the more recent ones are in their newer feed, which is what I'll put the link to. But they talk about things like, you know, the fire department, Broadway, um, churches, restaurants, museums, streets, neighborhoods, television in New York, radio in New York, just all sorts of things that touch on New York City. It's really a great time. So I highly recommend it. If you haven't listened to them for a while, pick a new episode and let them tell you a story. And if you've never tried them, you will not be sorry. Now back to the people of the mist. Our merry band of adventurers. Okay, well, there might not be that merry. (laughs) There are tangled webs, even though there are just a few people who we're hearing from. (laughs) But our band of adventurers, anyway, is off for the adventure of a lifetime. Now, I had been taken to task by a listener for saying deepest, darkest Africa under the idea that this would be Central Africa, if that was the case, possibly in the jungle. That's my contribution. And that this is probably South Africa. Oh, true enough. However, perhaps I was speaking from the idea of unknown Africa, Africa of a mythological tale, And um, to me, that's still deepest, darkest Africa, because when you hear what they have to go through to get there, which is what we're going to hear now, (laughs) I think we're going to all agree it counts probably close enough for deepest, darkest Africa. So essentially, we have the love triangle, which is not really a triangle. We have Leonard deeply in love with Juana, but he knows he can't act on it. We have Juana deeply in love with Leonard, but she knows he must be in love with Jane Beach, so she's just going to live her whole life as a sacrifice, never telling him. And then we have poor Father Francisco, who knows that he shouldn't even be interested, but you know, he's human. Here we go. But he is a priest, so he's trying his best to live the good life, help Juana out, and, um, you know, keep his eyes to himself. It's all very tangled up, but yet terribly fun. So let's go. We've been waiting for a while. Let's see what they have to do to get to the land of the people of the mist. Are you ready? I know, me too. Let's dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. The People of the Mist by H. Ryder Haggard. Chapter 18. Soa Shows Her Teeth. Three months had passed since that day when Juana declared her unalterable determination to accompany Leonard upon his search for the treasures of the people of the mist. It was evening, and a party of travelers were encamped on the side of a river that ran through a great and desolate plain. They were a small party, Three white people, namely Leonard, Francisco, and Juana, fifteen of the settlement men, under the leadership of Peter, that same headman who had been rescued from the slave camp, the dwarf Otter, and Juana's old nurse Soa. 
For twelve weeks they had traveled almost without intermission with Soa for their guide, steering continually northward and westward. First they followed the course of the river in canoes for ten days or more. Then, leaving the main stream, they paddled for three weeks up that of a tributary called Mavue, which ran for many miles along the foot of a great range of mountains named Mang Angha. Here they made but slow progress because of the frequent rapids, which necessitated the porterage of the canoes over broken ground, and for considerable distances. At length they came to a rapid which was so long and so continuous that, regretfully enough, they were obliged to abandon the canoes altogether and proceed on foot. The dangers of their water journey had been many, but they were nothing compared with those that now environed them, and in addition to bodily perils, they must face the daily and terrible fatigue of long marches through an unknown country, cumbered as they were with arms and other absolutely necessary baggage. The country through which they were now passing was named Marengi, a land uninhabited by man, the home of herds of countless game. On they went northward and upward through a measureless waste. Plain succeeded plain in endless monotony. Distance gave place to distance, and ever there were more beyond. Gradually the climate grew colder. They were traversing a portion of the unexplored plateau that separates southern from central Africa. Its loneliness was awful, and the bearers began to murmur, saying that they had reached the end of the world and were walking over its edge. Indeed, they had only two comforts in this part of their undertaking. The land lay so high that none of them were stricken by fever, and they could not well miss the road which, if so it was to be believed, ran along the banks of the river that had its source in the territories of the people of the mist. The adventures that befell them were endless, but it is not proposed to describe them in detail. Once they starved for three days, being unable to find game. On another occasion, they fell in with a tribe of bushmen who harassed them with poisoned arrows, killing two of their best men, and were only prevented from annihilating them through the terror inspired by their firearms, which they took for magical instruments. Escaping from the bushmen, they encountered a forest country which teemed with antelope and also with lions, that night by night they must keep at bay as best they could. Then came several days' march through a plain strewn with sharp stones, which lamed most of the party, and after this, eighty or a hundred miles of drearing, rolly belt, clothed with rank grass just now brown with the winter frosts that caught their feet at every step. Now at length they halted on the boundary of the land of the people of the mist. There before them, not more than a mile away, towered a huge cliff or wall of rock, stretching across the plain like a giant step far as the eye could reach, and varying from seven hundred to a thousand feet in height. Down the surface of this cliff the river flowed in a series of beautiful cascades, before they had finished their evening meal of buck's flesh, the moon was up, and by its light the three white people stared hopelessly at this frowning natural fortification, wondering if they could climb it, and wondering also what terrors awaited them upon its further side. 
They were silent that night, for a great weariness had overcome them, and if the truth must be known, all three of them regretted that they had ever undertaken this mad adventure. Leonard glanced to the right, where some fifty paces away the settlement men were crouched round the fire. They also were silent, and it was easy to see that the heart was out of them. "'Won't somebody say something?' said Juana at last, with a rather pathetic attempt at playfulness. How could she be cheerful, poor girl, when her feet were sore and her head was aching and she wished that she were dead almost? Yes, answered Leonard. I will say that I admire your pluck. I should not have thought it possible for any young lady to have gone through the last two months and come out smiling at the end of them. "'Oh, I am quite happy. Don't trouble about me,' she said, laughing as merrily as though there were no such things as sore feet and headaches in the world. "'Are you?' said Leonard. "'Then I envy you, that is all. Here comes old Soa and Otter after her. I wonder what is the matter now. Something disagreeable, I suppose.' Soa arrived and squatted down in front of them, her tall, spare form and somewhat sullen face looking more formidable than usual in the moonlight. Otter was beside her, and though he stood and she sat, their heads were almost on a level. "'What is it, Soa?' said Leonard carelessly. "'Deliverer,' she answered, for all the natives knew him now by this name. "'Some months ago.' When you were digging for gold yonder in the place of graves, I made a bargain with you, and we set the bargain down on paper. In that paper, I promised that if you rescued my mistress, I would lead you to the land where precious stones were to be won, and I gave you one of those stones in earnest. You saved my mistress, Mavum, her father, died, and the time came when I must fulfill my promise. For my own part, I would not have fulfilled it, for I only made it that promise, hoping to deceive you. But my mistress yonder refused to listen to me. No, she said, that which you have sworn on my behalf and your own must be carried out. If you will not carry it out, go away, Soa, for I have done with you. Then, deliverer, rather than part with her, whom I loved and whom I had nursed from a babe, I yielded. And now you stand upon the borders of the country of my people. Say, are you minded to cross them, deliverer? What else did I come for, Soa? he asked. Nay, I know not. You came out of the folly of your heart to satisfy the desire of your heart. Listen, that tale I told you is true, and yet I did not tell you all the truth. Beyond the cliff live a people of great stature and very fierce, a people whose custom it is to offer up strangers to their gods. Enter there, and they will kill you thus." "'What do you mean, woman?' asked Leonard. "'I mean that if you hold your life dear, or her life,' and she pointed to Juana, "'you will turn with the first light and go back whence you came. "'It is true that the stones are there, but death shall be the reward of him who strives to steal them.' 
<laughs> I must say this is cheerful, replied Leonard. What did you mean then by all that story you told me about a plan that you had to win the treasures of this people? Are you a liar, Soa? I have said that all I told you was true, she answered sullenly. Very well, then. I have come a good many hundred miles to put it to the proof. Nor am I going to turn back now. You can leave me once and for all, if you like, but I shall go on. I will not be made a fool of in this way. None of us have any wish to be made fools of, Mr. Outram, said Juana gently. And speaking for myself, I would far rather die at once than attempt a return journey just at present. So now, Soa, perhaps you will stop croaking and tell us definitely what we must do to conciliate these charming countrymen of yours, whom we have come so far to spoil. Remember, she added with a flash of her gray eyes, I am not to be played with by you, Soa. In this matter, the deliverer's interests are my interests, and his ends, my ends. Together we stand or fall, together we live or die, and that shall be an unhappy hour for you, Soa, when you attempt to desert or betray us. It is well, shepherdess, she answered. Your will is my will, for I love you alone in the world, and all the rest I hate. And she glared at Leonard and Otter. You are my father, my mother, and my child, and where you are, in life or in death, there is my home. Let us go then among this people of mine, there to perish miserably, so that the deliverer may seek to glut himself with wealth. Listen, this is the law of my people, or this was their law when I left them forty years ago that every stranger who passes through their gates should be offered as a sacrifice to Akka the mother if the time of his coming should be in summer, and to Jal the son if the time of his coming should be in winter, for the mist-dwellers do not love strangers. But there is a prophecy among my people which tells when many generations have gone by that Akka the mother and Jal the son shall return to the land which once they ruled, clothed in the flesh of men. And the shape of Akka shall be a shape such as your shepherdess, and the shape of Jal shall be as the shape of this black dog of a dwarf, whom when I first saw him in my folly I deemed immortal and divine. Then the mother and the son shall rule the land, and its kings shall cease from kingship, and the priests of the snake shall be their servants, and with them shall come peace and prosperity that do not pass away. Shepherdess, you know the tongue of the people of the mist, for when you were little I taught it to you, because to me it is the most beautiful of tongues. You know the song also the holy song of Rhea rising that shall be on the lips of the Akka when she comes again, in which I, being the daughter of the high priest, learned with many another secret before I was doomed to be a bride to the snake, and fled, fearing my doom. Now come apart with me, shepherdess, and you, black one, come also, that I may teach you your lesson of what you shall do when we meet the squadrons of the people of the mist." Juana rose to obey her, 
followed by Otter, grumbling, for he hated the old woman as much as she hated him, and moreover he did not take kindly to this notion of masquerading as a god, or indeed to the prospect of a lengthened sojourn amongst his adoring but from all accounts somewhat truculent worshippers. Before they went, however, Leonard spoke. "'I have heard you, Soa,' he said, "'and I do not like your words, for they show me that your heart is fierce and evil. "'Yes, though you love the shepherdess, your heart is evil. "'Now hear me. "'Should you dare to play us false, whatever may befall us, be sure of this. "'At that moment you die. "'Go.' "'Spare your threats, deliverer.' answered Soa haughtily. I shall not betray you, because to do so would be to betray the shepherdess. But are you then a fool that you think I should fear death at your hands, who tomorrow with a word could give you all to torment? Pray, deliverer, that the hour may not be near when you shall rejoice to die by the bullet with which you threaten me, so that you may escape worse things." and she turned and went. "'I am not nervous,' said Leonard to Francisco, "'but that she-devil frightens me. "'If it were not for Juana, "'she would cause us to be murdered "'on the first possible opportunity, "'and if only she can secure her safety, "'I believe that she will do it yet.' "'And I believe that she is a witch, Altram,' "'answered the priest with fervor, "'a servant of the evil one "'such as are spoken of in the scriptures.' Last night I saw her praying to her gods. She did not know that I was near, for the place was lonely. But I saw her, and I never wished to see anything so horrible again. I will tell you why she hates us all so much, Outram. She is jealous, because the Signora does not hate us. That woman's heart is wicked. Wickedness was born in her. Yet, as none are altogether evil, she has one virtue— her love of the Signora. She is husbandless and childless, and even among the black people, as I have learnt from the settlement men, all have feared her and shrunk from her, notwithstanding her good looks. Therefore everything that is best in her has gone to nourish this love for the woman whom she nursed from a babe. It was because of her fierceness that Signor Rod, who is dead, chose her for his daughter's nurse, when he found her heart was hungry with love for the child, for he knew that she would die before she suffered harm to come to her. He showed good judgment there, said Leonard. Had it not been for Soa, Juana would have been a slave girl now, or dead. That is so, Outram. "'but whether we showed good judgment "'in trusting our lives to her tender mercies "'is quite another matter. "'Say, friend, do you think it well "'to go on with this business?' "'Oh, confound it all,' said Leonard with irritation. "'How can we turn back now? "'Just think of the journey and how foolish we should look. "'Besides, we have none of us got anything to live upon. "'It took most of the gold that I had "'to bribe Peter and his men to accompany us. "'I dare say we shall all be killed.' That seems very probable, but for my part I really shan't be sorry. I am tired of life, Francisco. It is nothing but a struggle and a wretchedness, and I begin to feel that peace is all I can hope to win. I have done my best here according to my lights, so I don't know why I should be afraid of the future, especially as it has been taken out of me pretty well in the present, though of course I am afraid for all that. Every man is. 
The only thing that troubles me is a doubt whether we ought to take Juana into such a place. But I really do not know but what it would be dangerous to go back as to proceed. Those gentlemen with the poisoned arrows may have recovered from their fear of firearms by now. I wish we had nothing worse than the hereafter to fear, said Francisco with a sigh. It is the journey thither that is so terrible. As for our expedition, having undertaken it, I think on the whole we had better persevere, especially as the Signora wishes it, and she is very hard to turn. After all, our lives are in the hands of the Almighty, and therefore we shall be just as safe, or unsafe, among the people of the mist as in a European city. Those of us who are destined to live will live, and those whose hour is at hand must die. And now good night, for I am going to sleep. Next morning, shortly before dawn, Leonard was awakened by a hubbub among the natives, and creeping out of his blankets he found that some of them, who had been to the river to draw water, had captured two bushmen belonging to a nomadic tribe that lived by spearing fish. These wretched creatures, who notwithstanding the cold only wore a piece of bark tied round their shoulders, were screaming with fright, and it was not until they had been pacified by gifts of beads and empty brass cartridges that anything could be got out of them. When confidence had at length been restored, Otter questioned them closely as to the country that lay beyond the wall of rock and the people who dwelt in it through one of the settlement men who spoke a language sufficiently like their own to make himself understood. They replied that they had never been in that country themselves because they dared not go there, but they had heard of it from others. The land was very cold and foggy, they said, so foggy that sometimes people could not see each other for whole days and in it dwelt a race of great men covered with hair, who sacrificed strangers to a snake which they worshipped, and married all their fairest maidens to a god. That was all they knew of the country and of the great men, for few who visited there ever returned to tell tidings. It was certainly a haunted land. Finding that there was no more to be learnt from the bushmen, Leonard suffered them to depart which they did at considerable speed, and ordered the settlement men to make ready to march. But now a fresh difficulty arose. The interpreter had repeated all the bushmen's story to his companions, among whom, it is needless to say, it produced no small effect. Therefore, when the bearers received their orders, instead of striking the little tent in which Juana slept and preparing their loads as usual, after a brief consultation they advanced upon Leonard in a body. "'What is it, Peter?' he asked of the headman. "'This, deliverer, we have travelled with you and the shepherdess for three full moons, "'enduring much hardship and passing many dangers. "'Now we learn that there lies before us a land of cold and darkness, "'inhabited by devils who worship a devil. "'Deliverer, we have been good servants to you, "'and we are not cowards, as you know.' but it is true that we fear to enter this land. What do you wish to do then, Peter? asked Leonard. We wish to return whence we came, deliverer. Already we have nearly earned the money you gave to us before we started, and we will take no more pay if we must win it by crossing yonder wall. The way back is far, Peter, answered Leonard, 
and you know its perils. How many, think you, will reach their home alive if I am not there to guide them? For know, Peter, that I will not turn back now. Desert me if you wish, all of you, and still I will enter this country alone, or with otter only. Alone we took the slave camp, and alone we will visit the people of the mist. Your words are true, deliverer, said Peter. The homeward way is far, and its perils are many. Mayhap, but very few of us will live to see their huts again, for this is an ill-fated journey. But if we pass yonder, and he pointed to the wall of rock, then we shall all of us certainly die, and be offered to a devil by devils. Leonard pulled his beard thoughtfully and said, It seems there is nothing else to say, Peter, except goodbye. The headman saluted and was turning away with an abashed countenance when Juana stopped him. Together with Otter and the others, she had been listening to the colloquy in silence and now spoke for the first time. Peter, she said gently, when you and your companions were in the hands of the yellow devil and about to be sold as slaves, who was it that rescued you? They deliver our shepherdess. Yes, and now do my ears betray me, or do I hear you say that you and your brethren, who with many another were saved from shame and toil by the deliverer, are about to leave him in his hour of danger? You have heard a right, shepherdess, the man answered sadly. It is well, Peter. Go, children of Mavum, my father, who can desert me in my need. For learn, Peter, that where you fear to tread, there I, a white woman, will pass alone with the deliverer. Go, children of my father, and may peace go with you. Yet as you know, I, who foretold doom of the yellow devil, am a true prophetess. And I tell you this, that but a very few of you shall live to see your kraal again, and you will not be of their number, Peter. As for those who come home safely, their names shall be a mockery. The little children shall call them coward and traitor and jackal, and one by one they shall eat out their hearts and die, because they deserted him who saved them from the slave ship and the scourge. Farewell, children of my father. May peace go with you, and may his ghost not come to haunt you on your path. And with one indignant glance, she turned scornfully away. Brethren, said Peter after a moment's pause, is it to be borne that the shepherdess should mock us thus, and tie such ropes of shame about our necks? No, they answered, we cannot bear it. Then for a while they consulted together again, and presently Peter stood forward and said, Deliverer! We will accompany you and the shepherdess into the country of devils. Nor need you fear that we shall desert or betray you. We know well that we go to our death, every one of us. Still, it is better to die than to live bearing the burden of such bitter words as hide within the shepherdess's lips. Very well, answered Leonard. Get your loads and let us start. Aye, it is well indeed put in Otter with a snort of indignation. I tell you this, Peter, that before you left this place the words of the shepherdess had come true for you and one or two others. 
for I should have fought you till I was killed, and though I have little wisdom, yet I know how to fight. Leonard smiled at the dwarf's rage, but his heart was heavy within him. He knew that these men had reason on their side, and he feared greatly lest their evil forebodings should come true, and the lives of all them pay forfeit for his rashness. But it was too late to turn back now. Things must befall as they were fated. Chapter 19 The End of the Journey An hour later, the party began the ascent of the Wall of Rock, which proved to be an even more difficult business than they had anticipated. There was no path, for those who lived beyond this natural barrier never came down it, and few of the dwellers in the plains had ever ventured to go up. It was possible, for Soa herself had descended here in bygone years, and this was all that could be said for it. In default of a better road, they followed the course of the river, which thundered down the face of the precipice in four great waterfalls, connected by as many sullen pools, whose cavities had been hollowed out in the course of centuries from the rocks. The second of these ledges proved so insurmountable that at one time Leonard thought they would be obliged to abandon their attempt and follow the foot of the cliff till they found some easier route. But at last Otter, who could climb like a cat, succeeded in passing the most dangerous part at the risk of his life, bearing a rope with him by means of which the rest of the party and the load of goods were hauled up one by one. It was evening before the height was scaled, and they proceeded to encamp upon its summit, making a scanty meal of some meat which they had brought with them. That night they passed in great discomfort, for it was midwinter, and here the climate proved to be very cold. Bitter winds swept across the vast plain before them and searched them through, all the clothing and blankets they had scarcely sufficing to keep them warm. Indeed, the settlement men and Francisco, who had been bred in southern clime, suffered severely. Nor were matters improved when on the breaking of the light they woke from a troubled sleep to find the plain hidden in a dense mist. However, they rose, made a fire with reeds and dead wood which they gathered on the banks of the river, and ate, waiting for the fog to vanish. But it did not vanish. So about nine o'clock they continued their journey under Soa's guidance, following the east bank of the river northwards. The ground proved easy to travel over, for with the exception of isolated water-worn boulders of granite, the plain was perfectly smooth and covered with turf as fine as any that grows in northern lands. All that day they marched on, wandering like ghosts through the mist, and guided in their path by the murmuring sounds of the river. They met no man, but once or twice great herds of hairy creatures thundered past them. Leonard fired into one of these herds with an express rifle, for they wanted meat, and a prodigious snorting and bellowing told him that his shot had taken effect. Running to the spot whence the sounds came, he found a huge white bull, kicking in its death struggle. The animal was covered with long white hair like that of the British breed of white cattle, and measured at least seventeen hands in height. Round it stood others, snorting with fear and wonder, that, when they saw Leonard, put down their heads threateningly, tearing up turf with their great horns. He shouted aloud and fired another shot, whereon they turned and disappeared into the mist. 
This happened toward nightfall, so they determined to camp upon the spot. But while they were engaged in skinning the bull, an incident occurred that did not tend to raise their spirits. At sunset the sky cleared a little. At least the sinking sun showed red through the mist as it does in a London fog of the third density. Against this red ball of the sun, and some dozen yards away, suddenly there appeared the gigantic figure of a man, for unless the fog deceived them, he must have been between six and seven feet high and broad in proportion. Of his face they could see nothing, but he was clad in goatskins and armed with a great spear and a bow slung upon his back. Juana was the first to see and point him out to Leonard with a start of fear as he stood watching them in solemn silence. Obeying the impulse of the moment, Leonard stepped forward toward the vision holding his rifle ready, but before he reached the spot where it had stood, the figure vanished. Then he walked back again to Juana. I think we have heard so much of giants that we begin to believe we see them, he said, laughing. As he spoke, something clove the air between them and stuck in the earth beyond. They went to it. It was a large arrow having a barbed point and flighted with red feathers. This is a very tangible fancy at any rate, Juana answered, drawing the shaft out of the ground. We have had a narrow escape. Leonard did not speak, but raising his rifle he fired it at a venture in the direction whence the arrow had sped. Then he ran to put their little band in a position of defense, Juana following him. But as it chanced, he might have spared himself the trouble, for nothing further happened. Indeed, the net outward and visible result of this mysterious apparition was that they spent a miserable night waiting in the fog and wet, for it had come on to rain, or rather drizzle, for an enemy who, to their intense relief, never appeared. But the inward and spiritual consequences were much greater, for now they knew that Soa spoke truth, and that the legend of the Bushmen as to great men covered with hair was no mere savage invention. At length the morning came. It was damp and wretched, and they were all half-starved with cold and oppressed by fears. Indeed, some of the settlement men were so terrified that they openly lamented having suffered their sense of shame and loyalty to overcome their determination to retreat. Now they could not do so, for the malcontents among them did not dare to retrace their steps alone. Moreover, Leonard spoke plainly on the matter, telling them that he would drive away the first man who attempted any insubordination. Soaked through, Shivering and miserable, they pursued their march across the unknown plain. Soa, who seemed to grow hourly grimmer now that she was in her own country, stalking ahead of them as guide. It was warmer walking than sitting still, and in one respect their lot was bettered, for a little wind stirring the mist from time to time revealed gleams of the watery sun. All that day they journeyed on, seeing no more of the man who had shot the arrow, or his fellows, till at length darkness drew near again. Then they halted, and Leonard and Otter walked to and fro, searching for a suitable place to make the camp and pitch their solitary tent. Presently Otter shouted aloud. Leonard ran toward him, and found him staring into the mist at something that loomed largely about a hundred yards away. "'Look, boss,' he said. 
There is a house, a house of stone with grass growing on the roof. Nonsense, said Leonard. It must be some more boulders. However, we can soon find out. They crept cautiously toward the object that, as soon became evident, was a house, or a very good apology for one, built of huge undressed boulders, bedded in turf by way of mortar, and roofed with the trunks of small trees and a thick thatch of sods whereon the grass grew green. This building may have measured forty feet in length by twenty in depth, and seventeen from the ground line to the wall plate. Also it had a doorway of remarkable height, and two window places. But all these openings were unclosed, except by curtains of hide which hung before them. Leonard called Soa and asked her what the place was. "'Doubtless the house of a herdsman,' she answered. "'Who is set here to watch the cattle of the king or of the priests? It may chance that this is the dwelling of that man who shot the arrow yesterday.' Having assured themselves that here was a human habitation, it remained to be ascertained whether it was tenanted. After waiting a while to see if anyone passed in or out, Otter undertook this task. Going down on his hands and knees, he crept up to the wall, then along it to the doorway, and after listening there a while, he lifted a corner of the hide curtain and peeped into the interior. Presently he rose, saying, "'All right, boss.' The place is empty. Then they both entered, and examined the dwelling with curiosity. It was rude enough. The walls were unplastered and the damp streamed down them. The floor was of trodden mud, and a hole in the roof served as a chimney. But by way of compensation, the internal space was divided into two apartments, one of them a living room, and the other a sleeping chamber. It was evident that the place had not been long deserted, for fires still smoldered on the hearth, round which stood various earthen cooking dishes, and in the sleeping-room was a rough bedstead of wood, whereupon lay wrappings made from the hides of cattle and goats. When they had seen everything there was to be seen, they hurried back to the others to report their discovery, and just then the rain set in more heavily than before. "'A house!' said Juana. "'Then, for goodness' sake, let us get into it.' "'We are all half dead with cold and wet.' "'Yes,' answered Leonard. "'I think we had better take possession, "'though it may be a little awkward "'if its rightful owners come back.' "'The best that can be said for the night "'which they spent in this stone shanty, "'undisturbed by any visit from its lawful tenant, "'is that it passed a shade more comfortably "'than it would have done outside. "'They were dry, though the place was damp, "'and they had a fire.' Still, until you are used to it, it is trying to sit in the company of a score of black people and of many thousand fleas, enveloped with a cloud of pungent smoke, according to the custom of our Norse ancestors. Soon Juana gave up the attempt, and retired to the great bed in the inner chamber, wondering much who had occupied it last. A herdsman, she judged, as Soa had suggested, for in a corner of the room stood an ox-goad, hugely fashioned but it was a bed, and she slept as soundly in it as its numerous insect occupants would allow. The others were not so fortunate. They had the insects, indeed, but no bed. Again the morning came, wet, miserable, and misty, and through the mist and rain they pursued their course, whither they knew or not. 
All day they wandered on by the banks of the river till night fell and they camped, this time without shelter. Now they had reached the extreme of wretchedness, for they had little or no food left and could not find fuel to make a fire. Leonard took Soa aside and questioned her, for he saw clearly that a couple more days of this suffering would put an end to all of them. You say these people of yours have a city, Soa? They have a city, Deliverer, she answered. But whether they will allow you to enter it, except as a victim for sacrifice, is another matter. None of us will enter unless we find shelter soon, he answered. How far is the place away? It should be a day's journey, Deliverer. Were the mist gone, you could see it now. The city is built at the foot of the great mountains. There are none higher, but the fog hides everything. Tomorrow, if it lifts, you will see that I speak truth. Are there any houses near where we can shelter? He asked again. How can I tell? She answered. It is forty years since I passed this road, and here, where the land is barren, none dwell except the herdsmen. Perhaps there is a house at hand, or perhaps there is none for many miles. Who can say? Finding that Soa could give no further information, Leonard returned to the others, and they huddled themselves together for warmth on the wet ground as best they might, and sat out the hours in silence, not attempting to sleep. The settlement men were numb with cold, and Juana also was overcome for the first time, though she tried hard to be cheerful. Francisco and Leonard heaped their own blankets on her, pretending that they had found spare ones. But the wraps were wringing wet and gave her little comfort. Soa alone did not appear to suffer, perhaps because it was her native climate, and Otter kept his spirits, which neither heat nor cold nor hunger seemed to affect. "'Well, my heart is warm, I am warm,' he said cheerfully when Leonard asked him how he fared. As for Leonard himself, he sat silent listening to the moans of the settlement men, and reflecting that twenty-four hours more of this misery would bring the troubles of most of them to an end. Without food or shelter, it was very certain that few of those alive tonight would live to see a second dawn. At last the light came, and to their wonder and exceeding joy they found that the rain had ceased and the mist was melting. Once more they beheld the face of the sun and rejoiced in its warmth, as only those can rejoice who for days and nights have lived in semi-darkness, wet to the skin, and frozen to the marrow. The worst of the mist was gone indeed, but it was not until they had breakfasted off a buck which Otter shot in the reeds by the river that the lingering veils of vapor withdrew themselves from the more distant landscape. At last they had vanished, and for the first time the wanderers saw the land through which they were traveling. They stood upon a vast plain that sloped upwards gradually until it ended at the foot of a mighty range of snow-capped mountains named, as they learned in after days, the Bina Mountains. This range was shaped like a half-moon or a bent bow, and the nearest point of the curve formed by a soaring snowy peak that was exactly opposite to them, and to all appearances not more than five and twenty miles away. On either side of this peak the unbroken line of mountains receded with a vast and majestic sweep, till the eye could follow them no more. 
The plain about them was barren, and everywhere strewn with granite boulders, between which wandered herds of wild cattle mixed with groups of antelopes. But the lower slopes of the mountains were clothed with dense juniper forests, and among them were clearings, presumably of cultivated land. Otter searched the scene with his eyes, which were as those of a hawk, then said quietly, Look yonder, Bass. The old hag has not lied to us. There is the city of the people of the mist. Following the line of the dwarf's outstretched hand, Leonard saw what had at first escaped him, that standing back in a wide bend at the foot of a great mountain in front of them were a multitude of houses, built of gray stone and roofed with green turf. Indeed, had not his attention been called to it, the town might well have missed observation until he was quite close to its walls, for the materials of which it was constructed resembled those of the boulders that lay about them in thousands, and the vivid green of its roofs gave it the appearance of a distant space of grassy land. Yes, there is the crawl of the great people, said Otter again, and it is a strong crawl, sea bass. They know how to defend themselves. The mountain is behind them that none can climb, and all around their walls the river runs, joining itself together again on the plain beyond. It would go ill with the impi which tried to take that crawl. For a while they all stood still and stared amazed. It seemed strange that they should have reached this fable city and... Now that they were there, how would they be received within its walls? This was the question which each one was asking of himself. There was but one way to find out. They must go and see. No retreat was now possible. Even the settlement people felt this. Better to die at the hands of the great men, said one of them aloud, than to perish miserably in the mist and cold. Be of good cheer, Leonard answered. You are not yet dead. The sun shines once more. It is a happy omen. When they had rested and dried their clothes, they marched on with a certain sense of relief. There before them was the goal they had traveled so far to win. Soon they would know the worst that could befall, and anything was better than this long suspense. By midday they had covered about fifteen miles of ground and could now see the city clearly. It was a great town, surrounded by a cyclopean wall of boulders, about which the river ran on every side, forming a natural moat. The buildings within the wall seemed to be arranged in the streets, and to be built on a plan similar to that of the house in which they had slept two nights before, the vast conglomeration of grass-covered roofs giving the city the appearance of a broken field of turf hillocks supported upon walls of stone. For the rest, the place was laid out upon a slope, and at its head, immediately beneath the sheer steps of the mountainside, stood two edifices very much larger in size than any of those below. One of these resembled the other houses in construction, and was surrounded by a separate enclosure. But the second, which was placed on higher ground, so far as they could judge at that distance, was roofless, and had all the characteristics of a Roman amphitheater. At the far end of this amphitheater stood a huge mass of polished rock, bearing a grotesque resemblance to the figure of a man. "'What are those buildings, Soa?' asked Leonard. 
the lower one is the house of the king white man, and that above is the temple of deep waters, where the river rises from the bowels of the mountain. And what is the black stone beyond the temple? That white man is the statue of the god who sits there forever, watching over the city of his people. He must be a great god, said Leonard, alluding to the size of the statue. He is great, she answered, and my heart is afraid at the sight of him. After resting for two hours, they marched on again, and soon it became apparent that their movements were watched. The roadway which they were following, if a track beaten flat by the feet of men and cattle could be called a road, wound to and fro between boulders of rock, and here and there, standing upon the boulders, were men clad in goatskins, each of them carrying a spear, a bow, and a horn. So soon as their party came within five or six hundred yards of one of these men, he would shoot an arrow in their direction, which, when picked up, proved to be barbed with iron, and flighted with red feathers like the first they had seen. Then the sentry would blow his horn, either as a signal or in token of defiance, bound from the rock, and vanish. This did not look encouraging, but there was worse to come. Presently, as they drew near to the city, they descried large bodies of armed men crossing the river that surrounded it in boats and on rafts, and mustering on the hither side. At length all of them were across, and the regiment, which appeared to number more than a thousand men, formed up in a hollow square, and advanced upon them at the double. The crisis was at hand. Well, now we are well and truly in adventure. For one thing, more than a thousand men against them. Kind of giant-like men against them. Well-armed and pretty good with a bow and arrow. Okay, let's see if Soa's little trick is going to work. It is, of course, the most wonderful coincidence ever that... Juana and Otter happen to be the spitting images of the goddess and sun that are needed to gain entrance to the city. But then you start to run into the whole concept of the men who would be king, and we remember that Haggard and Kipling were friends. Now, The Man Who Would Be King was written in 1888. The People of the Mist came out in 1893 in serialized form. So if there is any resemblance, and I'm not saying there is, but it seems a similar setup, pretending to be gods, yet your people. Anyway, seems like a recipe for disaster later on. <laughs> Unless the rubies are just lying around where you can scoop them up, put them in your pockets and run away. And since we're only just shy of halfway through the book, I'm just guessing that's not going to happen. Okay, I've read the book. That's not going to happen. And where would be the adventure in that? <laughs> that would not be H. Ryder Haggard's style. So we are set to see if Juana and Otter's ploy is going to work. And other than that, I don't have a lot. Um, I'm awfully glad I wasn't on that journey with them. It sounded terrible. And these stone houses with the grass on top sound intriguing, but also not very comfortable at all. 
although they may not have anything else to work with but that. In other news, let's see, Scott and I at A Good Story is Hard to Find will have an episode in two days about The Rosie Project, one of my favorite new books, a book I recommend to everyone. It is light, it is funny, it's a perfect summer read, and I believe I've bothered you about it already. Also, I had a great time on Sunday recording a podcast episode with the SFF Audio Gang about The Martian, which is a book that everybody has been suddenly talking about and made me really interested in it. And I was so glad that everybody else seemed to really enjoy it too. It was a great conversation and I'm not sure exactly when that will be up, but I will definitely let you know when that happens. Other than that, it's early May and I believe it is too early for it to be hitting the 90s. Just a feeling I have. (laughs) A feeling of somebody who really doesn't like it to be in the 90s or above. But it's doing it anyway. And we've started grilling. We've started sitting out on the patio on a weekend evening with our cocktails, listening to birds call, and in general being quite pastoral. Wow, it's that same thing again. A calm, peaceful life does not make for very good storytelling. I hope you're having a calm, peaceful life. And I appreciate you leaving whatever part of your calm, peaceful life you do have to come over to Forgotten Classics and listen to these stories. Because as we all know, I would not be reading them out loud if somebody wasn't out there listening to me. And I am really having a blast reading this one. Have a great week, everyone. And I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.